Welcome, everyone. Obviously, if you're here this morning, um, things are a little different. My family and I aren't there. We're playing it safe. Um, I think everyone is okay, but just out of abundance of caution, uh, we want to make sure um, that everything is okay. So uh, we thought we would try this format this time, uh, just in case you know the, the worst happens and that one of us does come down with COVID uh, and, and out for the next two weeks. So I, I want to at least give this a try uh, to see how we like it. I know it's not ideal, but for the last year, we've been making a lot of adjustments, trying a lot of things, and a lot of things we hope that in the near future we won't have to try again. Uh, but nevertheless, here we are. Uh, but if you have your Bibles, please turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, and we have, since the first of the year, been going over the parables of Matthew uh, whenever we can start back again on Sunday nights. And, of course, you know, COVID stuff has complicated a lot of things, as it is this morning. Um, we, we hope to look at some of the parables in Luke's gospel. Uh, so we, we will be doing this up to, to about Easter time. Mark chapter 13, we've already seen the parable of the sower, or the parable of the soils, we called it, and the parable of the seeds. Now we want to look at the parable, uh, two parables actually, one of the mustard seed and the other of the leaven. Uh, it says here in verse 31 of Matthew 13, He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. I've been thinking a lot over the last few years about how, how quickly words in the English language are evolving. Now, if I wanted to, we could be distracted by other issues, but, but I want to focus on one word in particular, and that is the word viral. The word viral used to have a, a medical application to it, and so we would speak of a viral flu or a viral disease or, or, or that a cold was viral. For example, um, it, it, uh, the Black Death is considered the, the, the worst uh, plague, the deadliest plague in human history. And from what we could tell, it started in Asia and found its way in Europe, likely through rats. The, 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 trade, uh, uh, the, 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 the trade routes uh, uh, connected east and west, and, and as a result, people were exposed to, to various plagues and diseases. The disease, we could say, had gone viral, killing an estimated 25 million people. Uh, so anywhere between 30 and 60 percent of Europe's population. It depends on who it is you're reading. Now imagine if 60 percent of Americans died. Now I know things with uh, the pandemic is are, are bad enough, right? Imagine if that number was 60 percent, or even 30 percent. You're looking at millions upon millions of Americans dying. But the term viral doesn't have a medical meaning anymore, does it? In fact, when we speak of the coronavirus, we use terms like pandemic, contagious, stuff like that. One of the reasons is because the word viral is, is, 
has a similar meaning, yes, but it's used in a different context. We speak of videos going viral. We speak of, of news and speeches and tweets and posts going viral. For example, in 2007, a family posted a video of their young toddler son uh, putting his finger in his uh, infant brother's mouth, who then bit him. And the little toddler, uh, it's a British family, uh, would then say, Mama, Charlie bit me. And he would cry, right? And then he would stick his finger right back into his brother's mouth so he can say, Stop it, Charlie. Stop biting me, right? Well, that video in 13, 14 years ever since, that video went viral. Uh, I looked it up this week. It now has garnered nearly 900 million views. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. And we can look at other examples, of course. Uh, but viral, though it has taken on this new meaning, it has always meant something that continues to grow and to spread. And what Jesus argues in these two sister parables is the kingdom of God, though you can't see it yet, will become viral. Let's, let's, let's summarize the, the parables as quickly as we can before we look at the interpretation and the challenges that brings. In verses 31 to 32, um, Jesus is, again is going to tell us another parable about the kingdom. Uh, Matthew, remember, is, it has five major sermon sections. This is one of them. Uh, it's the kingdom parable. So all the parables in this chapter, your Bible, if you have a red letter Bible, is probably very red in this chapter. Um, and, and it's all about the kingdom of God. And they're all parables, right? And so Jesus is, is doing this, and uh, he continues to use agricultural parables because the culture which you live in is agricultural, right? I, I think we understand that. He, he references a mustard seed at this time, a very common seed. It was wheat that we saw last week. It's a mustard seed this week, which is why I think when it comes to interpreting these parables, we, we have to be careful in using the interpretation of one parable to, to inform us about another. We can probably do that in some setting, but I think, I think we have to be careful. And once again, we meet a sower. What is the sower doing? He is sowing seed because that is what sowers do, right? All of this stuff we've, we've looked at. Now, he describes the mustard seed in verse 32 as the smallest seed. Now, this is not technically uh, true. Uh, and so a lot of critics of the Bible will say, see, 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 Jesus got something wrong. He can't be the son of God and know everything. Ha, ha, ha. Back to video games in mom's basement. No, that, that's, you're, you're missing the point. We, we do this all the time. We use exaggerated language to make a finer point. So too, Jesus will say, this mustard seed, it's the smallest seed out there. Now, it's not literally the smallest seed out there, but have you ever actually seen a, a, a mustard seed? Whenever uh, one year at youth camp, the, the uh, camp pastor that week uh, would give out mustard seeds if you recited, I think it was Matthew 7, um, knock and the door will be open to you and seek and you will find, right? If you quoted it, he would give you a few. Well, I kept going to him because my goal was to fill up my, my name tag thing. I think I've still got it somewhere uh, with the mustard seeds. I thought that'd be a really, really cool. So eventually he got tired of me bothering him. So he had me memorize Psalm 23. I memorized Psalm 23 and he said, here's the rest of the mustard seed. They're super, super small. 
teeny tiny seeds. And, and, and the point we need to see here is the contrast between the small seed and the giant tree, so giant that the birds rest in its, in its branches. And, and from what we, we, we can measure to this day, a mustard tree shrub a tree grows anywhere between 10 and 15 feet tall. It's twice my height more. It's incredible, incredible height from such a small seed. And, and, and that, that's it. Right? He, he says, look, King Oz like a mustard seed. Put it in the ground, grows into a giant tree. Let me tell you another story, right? No explanation, just going to go right into another story. And it's given to us there in a single verse, verse 33, um, where it is about a woman um, putting leaven in flour. Now, some will call this a cousin parable because it's not a twin parable. And, and so that is to say the two are related, which is why I think we should look at them together. But that doesn't mean the interpretation is exactly the same. And I, I think that that is a... A fair point. Um, notice some of the contrast between the two, uh, and I think they are perfect or uh, uh, purposeful. Uh, first of all, uh, in the first parable, we have presumably a male sower because it's predominantly men who, who went out to the fields and, and sowed seed. Uh, here it is a woman, and so, so we have some balance. We have a man and a woman. Uh, in the first, it is a seed, it has to do with the agricultural world. Here it is a baking world. Uh, she, she instills leaven. So she is baking bread, and she puts three measures of flour in it. Now, this would make about 50 pounds of bread. I assume that's true. It's what I've read. I assume that that is true. I don't know anything about, about making bread. That is enough to feed over 50 people at this time. So she, she got, is in charge of fixing bread for the local Baptist potluck, I guess. I mean, this is a, a lot of bread. This is the amount of bread that when you go to Fazoli's or the Olive Garden or wherever it is where you get free bread, and, and when they first give you that basket of bread, you're thinking, why don't you just give me, um, you, you know, uh, f 50 pounds of bread? That way I don't have to keep bothering you, right? Right? This is <laughs> what this woman is, is, is doing. Yet, um, yet, in spite of all that bread, the amount of leaven she uses is quite small. So small, it looks leaven, or it looks hidden. Yet, it spreads throughout the entire loaf. And so what is it that, that we get in verses 34 and 35? We, we didn't read them, but it basically it, it says, to remind you, Jesus told parables. It confused the crowd, but then he would explain them to his disciples. And the thing is about these parables is we're not given an explanation. Jesus just tells us these two random stories. And he marches off, right? In the previous two parables, Jesus explains them to us. In fact, with, with the previous parable about, uh, about the wheat and the weeds, Jesus uh, fills everything in for us. But with these two parables, these sister parables, we could call them, he doesn't tell us anything. So what do we do with them? Let's first look at the mustard seed. Here I think what we see is a parable about the size of the kingdom of God. Now let's remember the Jewish context. The Jews are losing patience. Where's this Messiah at? When's he going to come? They had suffered already through Egypt, through the Philistines, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and now the Romans. 
And all along, they, they were waiting for the Messiah to show up. And there's this building anticipation that the king was near. And they understood the Messiah as a political king, the son of David. David, after all, was a political king, a military leader. And so, so they see the Messiah, a descendant of David, who would rule and reign over the world. And Jerusalem would be its center. At the same time, let's, let's remember Jesus' context here. The disciples, too, are losing patience. Matthew, if, if you read the previous 12 chapters, particularly in the last few has been emphasizing rejection. We've been seeing this in our uh, daily devotions in the Gospel of Mark because the two Gospels are very similar, particularly in the uh, chronological order of things. And so we, we, we see that, that Jesus would teach, but, but no one would, would recognize him as the Son of God. No, no one comes to worship him. They'll come to him and, and say, can you heal my loved one? Can, can you fix this? Can you solve that? And, and they'll marvel and they'll wonder what it is that's really going on here. But then the whispers of the serpent by the means of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all the religious elites comes and says, no, you need to see, he's, he's doing it by the means of Beelzebub. The, the, the Satan himself, right? No, no, no. He's, he's unclean because he doesn't wash his hands before he eats. He's, 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 he's evil and sinful because he does work on the Sabbath, right? And so Matthew has been building this, this tension that Jesus is one who is being rejected despite clear evidence of his true identity. Add to that, his ministry is focusing not on the political system, not on the cultural system, but on those in whom society has ignored. He heals the vulnerable and the sick, but he refuses to destroy the mighty hand of Rome. And at the end of the day, Jesus' followers are primarily a group of ragtag fishermen and outsiders. Where is this kingdom you're talking about, Jesus? You're going around saying, repent, the kingdom of God is at hand. And you look around, you're thinking, this, this can't be it. You go around telling people stories about what the kingdom looks like, and everyone's thinking, where is it? Where is this kingdom? Disciples continually are searching for a political kingdom. And when things are going good, they get excited, and they think, finally, the kingdom is coming. It has arrived. And a good example of this is the triumphal entry. But when things are going bad, all the followers of Jesus just want to throw up their hands. They're disappointed about it. That Jesus is just one in a long line of false, failed messiahs. Just look at the cross. In fact, even after the resurrection, they still didn't get it. In Acts chapter 1, verse 6, we get this, this verse. It says, so when they had come together, Jesus had been risen from the dead. He's about to be ascended. It's been going on for a couple weeks. They were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? Now is there going to be a throne? Now is there going to be a war? Now is there going to be liberation? Is now the time? And then consider what the message of the previous parables have been in Matthew's gospel. There's a parable of the soils, right? Where Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, most will reject the message of Jesus. At the end of the day, most will reject. Now, some will land along the pathway, 
They're open about the rejection. Some will land upon thorny soil and rocky soil. And at first, they may get really excited about Jesus. But life happens, and sin grips them, and Satan has his way. And some will land on good soil. They'll be all right. Or you can look at the parable of the seeds, right? What is it? That in the kingdom of God, believers and non-believers will, will co-mingle. And, 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 and you need to know that, they, that, that, that the righteous will win out in the end. And, and they will be justified in the end. And, and God will weed it all out. He'll figure it all out. But in the meantime, you need to know, in your midst, perhaps you this morning are numbered among the tares. Not the wheat. And then you get this. Kingdom of God. It's not like a mighty palace. It's not like someone who is rich making investments. No, the kingdom of God. It's like the tiniest seeds. If you were to drop it, you'd lose it forever. It's like the smallest drop of leaven swallowed in a room full of bread. Some kingdom. Some king. And the parable of the mustard seed doesn't help much, does it? But this point is you, you don't judge the mustard tree, the mustard plant by its seed, but by its size and fruit. I mean, you wouldn't look at a tree and say, well, that is insignificant because of where it began. Now, you may have looked at that seed and said, there is no way that giant plant came from this little seed. You might say that, but it's true nonetheless. Thus, we must judge the kingdom and its king, not from its humble beginning, but by its glorious end. Every plant must be cultivated by its sower. So, too, must the kingdom of God. At the incarnation of Jesus, the seed of the kingdom was planted. He was no prince, but a carpenter's son born in a feeding trough. He was no rich heir, but a poor boy from the small town of Nazareth. He was no high priest with long tassels and great honors, but a preacher with a small following. He was no prophet with a high office but a criminal crucified by the Romans. Some kingdom, we might say. Some king. And how many followers did Jesus have at the moment of his ascension? One of the most crucial events of all of Christianity. How many people were there to witness it? 120 souls. After all the miracles, after all the teachings, all the traveling, 120 people. Some kingdom. Some king. But that's not how the story ends. That is only how the kingdom was planted. Consider what we learn in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 41 we are told that 3,000 souls were added to the kingdom of God. 
Acts chapter 2, verse 47b, and the Lord was added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts chapter 4, 5,000 souls added to the kingdom of God. Chapter 5, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Acts chapter 6, the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to God. Those who were likely uh, complicit in the execution of Jesus. Acts chapter 9, verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee, Samaria, enjoyed peace being built up, and it continued to increase. Chapter 12, but the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Chapter 16, so the churches were being strengthened in the faith and were increasing in number daily. Chapter 17, therefore many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greeks, women, and men. Chapter 19, so the word of the Lord was growing rap or mightily and prevailing. Chapter 28, this is the end of the book. Preaching the kingdom of God, this is Paul, and teaching concerning the Lord. Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. It's fascinating that Luke will say Paul is unhindered when in reality he's chained 24 hours a day to a Roman guard under um, imprisonment, waiting trial. Some kingdom. Some king. The reason God chose these ragtag men by which he would cultivate the growth of the kingdom so that we can look back and say, yes, the gospel and the kingdom is a God thing. The kingdom of God doesn't grow by man's abilities, but God's power. That is why perhaps right now, right now, as we gather here this morning in the middle of pandemic, which is why this is pre-recorded. In the middle of this pandemic, many of us are spending too much time in front of our TVs or too much time on our, on our phones, too much time on our tablets and desktops and laptops, and we're starting to think, the world is crumbling around us. Where is the king? Where is the kingdom? What hope is there for us? And we see a continued shrinking of the people of God, and we begin to panic. Why? Because we, we have believed for far too long that growth in the kingdom comes by man's abilities, man's skills man's strategies rather than the way it's laid out here. We fail to see that all around the world the kingdom of God is not losing but it continues to expand. In some nations, yes, the kingdom of God marches in secret through private homes, through private conversations, but it is marching nonetheless. We are quickly approaching. In fact, right now, if you were to summarize what the average believer looks like around the world, they do not look like a white Southerner with a funny accent and Republican voting habit. Rather, they look Asian. They look African. They look South American, not Western European. Why? Because the kingdom of God continues to grow, continues to expand. Yet even now in the U.S., God continues to save souls. He continues to disciple believers who will indeed likely face an increasingly hostile nation. But the kingdom of God isn't done here yet. Would you believe that? You can look around and say, well, what hope do we have? And when we grasp the fact that, that we control nothing, but that God will give the growth, then we can really see the work of God in our nation. You see, the kingdom of God, it's like a mustard seed. Not only that, the kingdom of God is like leaven in flour. So we not only see the size of the kingdom, in the second purple, we see the spread of the kingdom. 
The second parable is like the first, yes, but it has a slight difference. The first emphasizes growth. The second emphasizes its spread. So notice that God owns both the field and the flower. The mustard seed grows in the field. The leaven leavens the whole lot. The kingdom of God is like mustard seed that grows to become a large tree in which birds of the air can live. By the way, can I just add a footnote there? I don't think it's helpful to over-spiritualize the birds in, that, in, in this parable. Sometimes in parables, a bird is just a bird, and you don't need to overcomplicate it. That happens in parables. Not every detail in the parable is something worth spiritualizing. Nevertheless, um, the leaven will spread. Um, and what we need to see is whether we're speaking of its size or its spread, God is behind both. Did you ever consider the fact that Jesus, in all of his ministry, and all that he did, and all that we have recorded, he never left Judea? Think about it. The most famous man who's ever lived in the history of humanity never left Judea. In fact, if you were living in Rome, you probably had never heard of this guy. You lived in Alexandria, Egypt, the second largest city in the Roman Empire at this time. And someone says, hey, what are your thoughts about Jesus of Nazareth? I, I, I've spam called you on your cell phone. I just, I just want, want your opinion on what you think of him. If you put a Twitter poll up at this time, it says, what do you all think of at Jesus of Nazareth, hashtag son of God? No one would know who it is that you're talking about. He's only got 120 followers on Twitter. Well, how do I care about any of this sort of stuff? And yet, he's the most famous man that ever lived. You can contrast this with, with what was expected. Solomon, with all of his wealth and all of his wisdom, the nations came to him, didn't it? People feared David. Jesus claims to be his promised heir. It's as if the movers and shakers of society could say, Solomon, I've heard. David, I know. But who is this Nazarene? And the disciples would have expected something different. They constantly thought Jesus was going to rise, he was going to challenge the Romans, set up his kingdom with an iron fist to rule the world. But Jesus says something completely different here. The kingdom of God is but a drop now, but it will continue to spread and to grow. I want you to pause for a minute and think about it. If I were to ask you, where is the capital city of Islam, what would you say? You'd probably say Mecca. If I were to ask you, what is the capital city of, of, uh, of the Jews? You would, of course, say Jerusalem. What is the capital city of Mormonism? It's Salt Lake City. That was after it was Nauvoo, and that was after it was another city, and they kept getting kicked out until finally they left the nation, um, which is now part of the nation they left, kind of ironically. But what is the capital of Christianity? Where is its center? doesn't have one, does it? It's not America, contrary to what some may believe. It's not Europe, contrary to what some may suggest. You see, from the very beginning, Christianity wasn't bound by a culture, a language, an experience, or, or a city. It was global in its expanse. You know Acts 1.8. I trust you know it quite well every time we talk about missionaries. You will be my witnesses where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the rest of the world. Much of Acts, a good chunk of it, is about a Jewish man who goes to the Gentile world. 
never compromising his Judaism, never questioning or being ashamed of the fact that he is a, a Jew. But he's sent to the nations. By the end of the book, he's in Rome, the very heart of the empire. By the end of the New Testament, Paul likely, it's debatable, made it all the way to Spain, which is the far western end of the empire. They couldn't get into Britain yet. There are those who go outside the British Empire or the Roman Empire, for what we can tell from, from church tradition and, and historical sources. So Acts begins with the spread of gospel in Jerusalem, yes, but it ends in Rome. And by the end of the New Testament, it's all over the Roman Empire. So we can conclude, though it doesn't look like it here in Israel when Jesus gave this parable, but we can look back and say, what an amazing kingdom. What an incredible king. And then if you get even beyond that, even beyond the, the Roman Empire, even beyond the medieval ages, and look at it now, all across the world, the gospel continues to spread. China, for example, is a closed country, yet the gospel continues to spread there. In fact, there are more believers now than when missionaries were expelled in, 1940, in the 1940s. When God leavens the gospel in the world, in the city, or in the church, it will inevitably spread. It is dangerous then for us to define, or we should say redefine the gospel to Americanism, Westernism, or Southern society. We must not quench the power and the reach of the gospel with the perversions of the gospel we, we, we've talked about last week. Spurgeon wrote, quote, or I think it's from his pulpit, suppose a number of persons were to take it into their heads that they had to defend a lion, a full-grown king of beasts. There he is in the cage, and here comes all the soldiers of the army to fight for him. Well, I should suggest to them, if they would not object and feel that it was humbling to them, they should kindly stand back and open the door, let the lion out. I believe that would be the best way of defending him, for he could take care of himself. And the best apology for the gospel is to let the gospel out. I think Spurgeon is exactly right there. And isn't it comforting to know that we worship a Savior who sows and leavens? We pray not that our traditions might be protected, that our idea of a nation would be realized, but that the kingdom of God expands, that souls be saved, lives transformed, and most importantly, God is glorified. We pray not that our life remain unchallenged, but that God would use us to accomplish his glorious deeds. You see, the kingdom of God is like that mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like a touch of leaven. Don't judge it by its beginning. Judge it by its conclusion. And what is it that we see in the end as Christ sits up his eternal kingdom? What is it that we see there in the throne room? The 24 elders, four living creatures, and all the saints throughout history, men, women, children, of language, nations, cultures, people groups, Democrats, Republicans, left, right, blue, red, foreigners, citizens, immigrants, everyone. 
singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, the one who was, the one who is, the one who is to come. You see, these sister parables is a call to faithfulness. They are a call to mission. For far too long, American evangelicals have tried to defend God and to make the gospel relevant. So we've turned to politicians, we've turned to culture, we've turned to trends. But God doesn't need to be defended. It just needs to be shared. Christ is king and will accomplish all that he desires. Therefore, the gospel is always relevant. And it isn't measured by who was in the White House or who is in the house next door. The kingdom of God continues to grow if you have eyes to see it. And the kingdom of God will continue to spread if you have the faith to participate in it. Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for allowing us, despite difficult circumstances, to still worship regularly, even if we have to make adjustments along the way. But God, I ask that for those who are here this morning, your kingdom would be realized, souls would be saved, the redeemed would be sanctified, and that our city would see Christ. Would you be so kind as to do that? Lord, unless you're involved, unless you do the work, it's, it's not going to happen. So, Lord, convict our hearts, draw us to Christ, and send a great revival to our souls. In the name of your glorious Son, the King, we pray.